Beautiful. Hebrews chapter 9, beginning with verse 11. <clears throat> Most of you have been here uh, the whole time we've been in Hebrews. And you know what I'm about to say is we don't know the author. We don't know who it was written to, but we know why it was written. It was written to those Jewish Christians who were tempted to go back to Judaism, to the tabernacle or to the temple and do the old forms of worship. And what the writer is doing is saying you can't leave the faith, you can't leave Jesus because everything about Jesus is better. Better than the angels, he's better than Abraham, better than Moses, he's better than Melchizedek, he's the best high priest. The book of Hebrews is very hard to understand and the reason is probably because we don't understand the Old Testament. We're not familiar with all the sacrifices and all that went on in the tabernacle or the temple and we're not aware of the temple and how it was built and how it was structured and so maybe it would be good to have a, a diagram of what's going on and, and we're not really tempted to leave Jesus to go back to the temple but at times we are tempted to leave the faith or something some of us are and so the the passages really do impact us and speak to us directly just want to read four verses Hebrews 9 11 through 14 <clears throat> when Jesus came as high priest of the good things that are already here he went through the greater and the more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made that is to say not a part of creation he did not enter by means of the blood of bulls goats and calves but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood having obtained eternal redemption the blood of bulls, I keep saying bull, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more will then the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our conscience from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. This is God's word to God's people. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, would you open our eyes uh, that we might see Christ in all his glory, that you might unstop our hear ears, that we might hear the gospel afresh and anew, and would you give us new hearts and renew our hearts, take away hearts of stone and make them hearts of flesh, free our wills that we might leave here and live for the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. 1955, Billy Graham was asked to go to Cambridge to deliver eight sermons to the Cambridge student body and the professors. By this time, Billy Graham was 37 years old and had become famous for his evangelistic efforts around the world and how he uniquely preached the gospel. Once the newspapers got hold of the invitation by Cambridge to Billy Graham, they started ridiculing him. Here's essentially what they said. I'm sure that Billy Graham is a nice man, but he's a fundamentalist Christian, 
the sort of guy who believes the blood of Jesus is required for salvation. And we all know that that sort of thing doesn't go over here. Further, I can't imagine that the fine young men and women from the University of Cambridge can learn anything from a man like this. What a welcome. Uh, Billy Graham wrote eight uh, intellectual, erudite, academic talks to give to Cambridge. As the day approached, he wrote his good friend John Stott and told him that he was almost tempted because this was not his expertise to cancel the services and back out of his commitment, but he said it's too late to do that. And so he approached it with trepidation and weakness because he wasn't a highly educated man. And so the first three nights he gave these polished, uh, written sermons, uh, academic talks, and nothing happened. I mean, nobody responded, and it was just kind of, if you've ever preached, which most of you haven't, it was kind of flat. Kind of wondered what he was doing. He went back to his room and began to pray what to do, and God led him to go back and just preach the gospel. And so he went back and... Here's what Dick Lucas said. Dick Lucas was the man who influenced Tim Keller the most about ministry, and I'm indebted for a couple of these illustrations to Tim Keller. But here's what Dick Lucas said. I'll never forget that night. It was in a totally packed chancel, 2000, sitting on the floor with the Regis Professor of Divinity sitting on one leg and the chaplain of the College of a Future Bishop and a Future Bishop on the other leg. Both of these were very good men, but completely against the idea that we needed salvation from sin by the blood of Jesus. So dear Billy got up that night and began at Genesis, and he went right through the whole Bible, and he talked about every single sacrifice you can imagine. There was blood flowing all over the place, everywhere, for three-fourths of an hour. And both of my neighbors, right and left, Bishop sitting on his, and Professor, and both of my neighbors were terribly embarrassed by this crude proclamation of the blood of Christ. It was everything they disliked and everything they dreaded. But at the end of the sermon, Billy Graham dismissed the audience and invited anyone who wanted to stay behind and make a commitment to Christ. And that night, 400 men and women gave their life to the Lord Jesus. John R.W. Stott said, Only eternity will know what happened that night at Cambridge. There is no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. The blood of Jesus is figured and pointed out throughout all the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation. And when you go to the book of Revelation, you find out that our eternal song will be a praise that Jesus gave himself and gave his blood that we might be washed clean. It says in Revelation 5, verse 4, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. And they will reign forever and ever. And the voice of the elders joined them in a loud voice. They sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. The hymns of heaven are about the redemption of Jesus Christ through the shed blood on the cross.
Our hymns are like that. There's power in the blood. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. There's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's vein. Our hymns, alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? Would He devote such head as His for such a worm as I? The blood of Jesus. Our passage talks about the blood of Jesus, and so I have a simple outline. The presence of blood, the power of the blood, and the purpose of the blood. The presence of blood. In the entire Bible, the blood of sacrifices mentioned 392 times. Mainly, or most of those are probably in the Old Testament and in the book of Leviticus. But in the New Testament, the book that mentions the blood of Christ more than any other is the book of Hebrews. It mentions it 21 times and 10 times in the very chapter that we're reading. Everywhere you turn in the book of Hebrews, there's the blood of Jesus. And Jesus gives a re- and, and the writer gives a reason because he says, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. What does the presence of blood mean? It means there's something serious going on. There's something serious going on when blood is being shed. One day I was sitting in my office. I got a call from Sarah. She said, come home. Uh, little David, who's now 6'5", uh, got hit in the mouth with a baseball, and he's bleeding. Well, I got there as quick as I could, and little David had a towel in his, on his mouth. It was soaked with blood, and blood was dripping down his elbows. I knew right away with my medical experience something was wrong. (laughs) He had had his front two teeth knocked out. Thankfully, he had braces, and the orthodontist just cut the braces, shoved the teeth back up, and then rewired them. David can tell you the rest of the story. But anyway, uh, blood means there's something serious happening. Blood means guilt. There's blood on my hands. Uh, You know, blood is signifies guilt you know it was because you're guilty of sin that you had to sacrifice and even uh, Pilate after he condemned Jesus he tried to wash the blood of his Jesus off his hands you know he washed his hands he didn't want his blood on his hands his death on him and blood stains it's hard to wash blood out if not almost impossible Sarah and I are big whodunit stories you know kind of like NCIS or CSI and we're watching CSI and we know that you cannot wash you can't even bleach blood out of carpet you know I wish crooks and murderers would know that but anyway they have this stuff and they they squirt it on the rug you ever seen it turn out the light and they squirt it on the rug and then they shine this light on it and the blood shows up because you can't get the stain out And so blood stains. It stains our conscience. It stains our heart. It stains our life. And blood is everywhere. In the Old Testament, you need to understand that the tabernacle basically was a place where sacrifices were made. That you had these daily sacrifices offered in the outer court. Daily sacrifices. I mean, every day. 
And then on the Day of Atonement, uh, mentioned in Leviticus, you had everybody come to Jerusalem, and they came to the temple, and they made a sacrifice for each family. And the blood was so predominantly uh, present that they, they, they dug a trough that led from the altar to the valley below there. Have you ever been where there's been animals slaughtered? Some of you are hunters, you know what it's like. I, I made the mistake of going with my dad to Hazelhurst when we took a cow to be slaughtered. And I can't remember exactly, I think I blocked it out, how they, I know how they did it, I don't remember seeing it though, thank goodness, of how they killed the animal and prepared it so that we could have meat in the freezer. Blood signifies the wages of sin is death. Not your death, but the death of another. And one of my professors, my favorite, one of my favorite professors, R.C. Sproul, was doing a question and answer session. And you can go look this up and watch it. It's even better uh, watching it live. And he was in a, with a panel. And this person stood up and says, uh, <clears throat> I just want to ask the panel, and anybody can answer it, that God, wasn't he a little harsh in that he put the Adam and Eve in the garden, and then he told them if they eat a piece of fruit, they would die? Isn't God just a little harsh there? And everybody else kind of looked around, and Narcy said, I I'll take that question. He said, okay, here, here's what I want you to understand. God took dirt and he shaped it into a form of a man. And then he breathed life into his nostrils. And then he put him in a garden of paradise that had everything in it he would want. And he gave him one prohibition, not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or in that day you'll die. And when they ate it, God was so gracious that he didn't kill them immediately, but he killed an animal to cover their shameful nakedness. And he said, and you want to tell me that was too harsh? What's wrong with you people? That's what he said. What's wrong with you people? That sin is serious rebellion, treason against the God that made us. And now the God who's redeemed us. And sin is a serious matter. And everything that we read in Hebrews makes you understand that blood, blood makes you realize it's not a light matter. We don't sing this hymn very much, but I love it. Ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here may view its nature rightly, here its guilt may estimate, Mark the sacrifice appointed. See who bears the awful load. Tis the word, the Lord's anointed, Son of man and Son of God. Sin's not light. Sin's not, not serious because it took the Son of God to atone for it. The presence of blood. The power of blood. We don't have this hymn in our hymn book. There's power in the blood. When I was a senior at seminary and we were candidating, that's looking for a job, 
we went to Heidelberg, Mississippi. And uh, I remember the opening hymn because I'd never heard it sung like that. Because they, they obviously love the hymn. There's power in the blood, you know, not power. There's power in the blood. And I remember just that, that church echoing, there's power in the blood. There's power in the blood. The, there's no power in the blood of bulls and goats and lambs and doves and all the sacrifices. Verse 9 says, we didn't read this, it says, uh, This is an illustration for the present time indicating the gifts and sacrifice being offered were not able to clean the conscience of the worshiper. They were only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings. External regulations applying until the time of the new order. They were the old covenant. They were powerless. All the blood of bulls and goats on Jewish altars slain could not remove our sin or take away our stain. They ritually, ceremonially, made them able to go back to worship. But they did nothing to their heart. They were pictures and illustrations and symbols that pointed past themselves to the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. They look forward to Christ, we look back to Christ, but we know that there's only forgiveness in the blood. Only the blood can clean your conscience. What is your conscience? One little boy said, your conscience is that which makes you feel bad when you should be feeling better. In other words, you got in trouble and now your heart is being convicted. It's that small voice that makes you feel smaller. It's that guilt gauge on the dashboard of your soul. It's that ethical, moral barometer that tells you this is right and this is wrong. And Luther was standing before the church court at the Diet of Worms. And he had all his works before him, not only the 95 Theses, but all the works before him. And what the Pope and those against him said was, we want you to recant. And Martin Luther says, it is neither wise nor proper to go against conscience. My conscience is bound by the Word of God. Here I stand, I can do no other. Martin Luther's conscience had been informed by the Word of God. Previously, Martin Luther's conscience had been informed by the trappings of the monastery. That he thought that fasting and praying and confessing and sleeping on the floor and, and going to hours to the priest to tell him his bad deeds, he thought those things would clear his conscience, but they didn't clear his conscience until he came to the Lord Jesus Christ, till he understood the gospel, and then the blood of Christ cleansed his conscience and gave him courage and boldness to preach it and proclaim it. I can remember my first introduction to my conscience. Can you? I was in the fifth or sixth grade. I don't remember which grade. And we were in the music hall. You know, we used to take music. Do y'all still take music? We were in the music hall. And I was not getting to play a part in the music. Imagine that. 
they didn't recognize my voice and its quality and my potential. And I understood that I was being stifled right there. And what I did was I started acting up. I started misbehaving. And Miss Carraway uh, called me to her office. Probably not the first time I was in the office in trouble. But she said, Timmy, I want to tell you something. She said, you have a conscience. And it's like this wheel with thorns on it. And it's doing rotating around your heart. And she said, every time you do something wrong, that your conscience is pricked. But she said, I'm so afraid that you have been bad so long in my class that the pricks have worn off. <laughs> but I understood that, and I've never forgotten that. Your conscience can be seared. Your conscience can be ill-formed. But Jesus is able to inform and to cleanse your conscience so that you understand the difference in right and wrong so your sins can be washed away and you can be clean and clear of conscience. We don't, we don't offer sacrifices to clear our conscience, do we? We do something wrong. And we say, well, we need to do something right to clear our conscience. I'd be willing to say there's somebody here this morning that's saying I'm here because I had a bad week and I need to do something to get right with God. Uh, we might uh, give more. We might go to church more. We might come to Sunday evening, maybe Wednesday night even. We might do good. We might volunteer to serve in the nursery. We might make two or three Christmas boxes. We might do community service. But the blood of bulls and goats and the doing of good won't wash away our conscience. There is a story in uh, Ken Hughes's book. He has a commentary on Hebrews. And he talks about the only Nazi at the Nuremberg trials that confessed that he was guilty. It's after World War II and they were being tried for war crimes. And Albert Speer, who was being interviewed for his book on Good Morning America, he had been the technological genius credited with keeping the Nazi factories humming during World War II. He confessed that he was responsible, although that he didn't gas them and he didn't do any of those terrible things like that. But he helped facilitate Hitler's regime and the end result were so many Jewish people were killed. And they interviewed, and the interviewer said, you have said that the guilt, your guilt can never be forgiven, and it shouldn't be. Do you still feel that way? The look of pathos on Spears' face was wrenching as he responded. <clears throat> I served a sentence of 20 years. I could say I'm a free man. My conscience has been cleared by serving the whole time of my punishment. But I cannot do that. I still carry the burden of what happened to millions of people during Hitler's regime. I cannot get rid of it. This new book is part of my atoning sacrifices. Part of my atoning 
of clearing my conscience. The interview pressed his point. You really don't think you're able to clear your conscience? Spear looked at him and shook his head and says, I don't think it's possible. Don't you wish somebody could gotten to him and told him about Jesus? You say you mean somebody like that could be forgiven? David was a murderer. Paul held the garments of people who murdered Stephen. The only unforgivable sin is to resist and blaspheme the Holy Spirit. There's power in the blood. I don't know what you've done that bothers your conscience when your conscience is bothered. But if you confess it and repent of it, Jesus can wash that white as snow. Your conscience can be clear. So not only is there the presence of blood, the power of blood, but there's a purpose behind all of this blood. And you see it in verse 14. He offered himself unblemished to God to cleanse our conscience from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. The purpose of Jesus' death was that we was that we might serve God. Sure, the purpose of Jesus' death was that he brought atonement. He redeemed us. He ransomed us. That's a word of he freed us from the power of sin. He's not only by his death freed us from the 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 pollution of sin, but he's freed us from this power of sin, so sin doesn't have to reign over us. He redeemed us with an eternal redemption, not just with daily uh, ramifications and, and benefits. It's eternal. By the eternal spirit, he offered himself. And so he offered us, uh, not just so that we'd be saved, so that we would be right with God and go to heaven and be justified, you know, before the Father adopted. He did that so that we might be free to serve the living God. And serve Him out of gratitude and thanksgiving. Tim Keller has a sheet that has the difference in religion and the gospel. If you've never seen it, you, you ought to look it up, read it, and meditate on it. But the first couple of things, he says, religion means you do things to get God to love you. The gospel says you do things because God does love you. Religion says you obey so that you'll be accepted and approved. And the gospel said you're accepted, now obey Religion is done out of fear of God's punishment and it's buying a ticket out of, uh, out of hell. But the gospel is motivated by gratitude and joy for what God has done. Probably my favorite verse in the whole Bible is Galatians 2.20. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's how we live. We live out of the realization that the cross of Christ demonstrates. He loves us because he gave himself for us. 
And innocent blood transforms us. It has a power to change us. It changes our motivation. How many of you have watched the river, uh, the bridge over the river Kwai? It's a movie about the bridge, railroad bridge being built by the Japanese. Uh, the movie is based on a true story that really was uh, prisoner of wars building, prisoners of war building a bridge, and 200 and something miles of it, I believe. And thousands, thousands, thousands died, actually died building this bridge. But they made the movie out of it, and movies, you know, embellish. And so I don't know if this actually happened, but it probably did. That one day that they got through working, and they worked sometimes 16-hour days, they got through working, and they counted the shovels, and one shovel was missing. So the Japanese lined all the prisoners up, and he went to the first one, and he held his gun to his head and said, if somebody doesn't confess to stealing a shovel, I'll die, I'll die, I'll die. And then there was this man down the line that stepped forward and said, I did it. He stepped out and a Japanese soldier went over there and hit him with the butt of his gun. Beat him in the face as his face was bleeding and blood was streaming down him. He was calling him names and he beat him until he collapsed and then he kicked him and beat him until he died. And then they recounted the shovels and one was not missing. This man had stood up to save everybody else. He was innocent. And everybody in there realized what had happened. An innocent man had died so that they might live. And here's what it says in the book. The tragedy had a profound effect on the prisoners. Word spread like wildfire throughout the camp that an innocent man was willing to die to save others. The event changed the way prisoners behaved. They ceased their conflict with one another and began treating each other like brothers, making sacrifices for each other to ensure their survival. Now listen to this. The sacrifice even impacted how the POWs saw their Japanese captors. When the victorious allies finally swept into camp, these Scottish soldiers were not much more than walking skeletons, but they lined up in front of the Japanese soldiers and insisted they not be killed. They knew in that moment that forgiveness was needed. That's the power of sacrificial love, innocent sacrificial love. And that's just a human sacrifice. What about Jesus' sacrifice? Once it sinks down into our heart, it changes our life. May it be so. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the blood of Jesus. Thank you that he died that we might live, that he washed away our sins. Uh, he brought us from death to life. Full atonement he made. Help us to live in gratitude for what he did, and may we 
long to hear and sing with the choir in heaven of the eternal sacrifice of Christ. May it be our song's end.